and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Spotify. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their rights to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic, Protecting American Industry, Vital Lifeline or Political Racket? The Gilded Age was the era in which the United States became the most powerful and prosperous industrial country in the world. A wash in investment capital, scientific and technological innovations, native and immigrant workers, and enjoying a prolonged period of peace after the Civil War. The dominant national party of the time, the Republicans, argued that this prosperity was thanks largely to the protection of the country's tariff, the taxes it collected on a whole range of goods imported from abroad, which not only funded everything the government needed and more, but also ensured that American workers and businesses would not be undercut by cheaper, or perhaps better, foreign competition. But how important was the tariff in making America the giant it became? Why did so many believe it was really necessary? Who opposed it, and why were they so unsuccessful in their efforts against it? And what can we learn from this period about questions of American enterprise today? With me to discuss these questions and more is Professor Douglas Irwin of Dartmouth University, author of The Exhaustive History of American Trade Policy Clashing Over Commerce. Doug, welcome. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. So let me ask you the question that I ask most of my guests when it comes to the Gilded Age. Let's imagine um a foreign expert say from britain or france or germany uh, specializing in economics and trade uh does an alexis de tocqueville visits the united states slightly before or around the uh, time of the civil war uh in the middle of our period around the 1890s and towards the end say the 1920s to inquire not only into the american economy and but american trade policy and try and understand the relationship between them what would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Well, that's a great question. Uh, in fact, there were a number of British observers who came over to the U.S. throughout this period and commented on U.S. trade policy. I think even Gladstone maybe didn't visit the U.S., but he, he wrote on U.S. trade policy uh, during this period, as did other uh, British commentators, uh, if not so, uh, so, who achieved such a high office at any rate. Uh, so it really, the, the first period depends a lot. Are we talking just before the Civil War or after the Civil War had broken out? Because that was a big change. In just, US be, just before the Civil War, before the big. Yeah. yeah. So I think the observation then was actually the U.S. tariffs had come down quite a bit over the previous 20 years. Uh, there were fairly low levels. Um, it still raised about 90% of the revenue for the federal government. So the tariffs that remained were important for as a revenue raising device. Uh, but the South, uh, had, which had objected to the tariffs throughout the uh, antebellum period, had sort of won the battle and, and in Congress and, and had brought down uh, those high tariffs. So I think 
British observer in 1859 would say the United States is not a free trading country, but they don't have many protective duties. The, the tariff schedule is pretty uniform, and those duties are imposed for uh, revenue purposes by and large. But once you go to the after the Civil War period, it was when the Republicans had sort of uh, a dominance in Congress and, and the presidency uh, that they were able to establish much higher tariffs that became protective and weren't willing to change those after the war that British observers would say, this is a very protectionist country that's maintaining these high tariffs. And that would go right to the through the end of the 19th century. So this is an interesting question. You bring it up and you discuss it, how the Republican Party ended up almost becoming literally the tariff party. Like almost every other issue that they fought for when they first formed seemed to be secondary to this one core question of protecting American trade and perhaps also protecting the gold standard. How was it, why was it that, I mean, when the Republican Party formed in, during the Civil War, uh, a little bit before the Civil War and then during the Civil War, it was a much more polyglot, uh, mixed bunch, uh, different people had different agendas. They all agreed on certain things, but they disagreed on others. How was it that they ended up seeing it as almost sacred, really? You're absolutely right. So what sort of fused the Republican Party together before the Civil War was slavery, of course. So you had some uh, Democrats who were anti-slavery from the North, um, as well as some old Whigs uh, that were um, uh, that wanted internal improvements uh, that had been uh, discussed in the antebellum period. But after the Civil War, as slavery sort of uh, was no longer the main political issue, the question is, well, what, what what's going to be the dividing issue in American politics? And uh, there weren't quite as, as many big national issues. Um, and so the tariff became it. And it was really a way of uh, solidifying the, uh, um, the support of the Republicans in the North. So as you know, and I'm sure your uh, listenership knows, uh, there's a big North-South divide between the Republicans and the Democrats in terms of their basis of support. Um, and uh, it was a way of the Republicans appealing to uh, uh, the cities with the gold standard and finance, but also uh, uh, um, uh, get support from manufacturers in Pennsylvania and Ohio and in New England saying, we're going to protect you from foreign competition. So that sort of became uh, the rallying cry uh, for uh, the Republican Party throughout the uh, uh, late 19th century. What about the Democrats? Uh, you note in your book that while it is true that uh, Democrats, uh, once they regain the ascendancy through means legit and otherwise uh, in the South uh, and in other places, very much remained uh, wedded to that uh, pre-Civil War concept of a tariff for revenue only. They even joked about it. Um, Democrats in other places started to become a little wishy-washier, like Democrats in Pennsylvania were like, you can fight for everything else, but you ain't touching the tariff. Uh, how exactly did they manage that conflict? Well, poorly? Yeah, so uh, the Democrats, I mean, once again, one of the themes of my book is that geography is, is destiny. That would uh, be overstating it in some sense. But because the parties were so uh, segregated uh, geographically, north and south, um, it, it, it sometimes became hard for uh, the parties to get inroads elsewhere. So it'd be very hard to be a protectionist a Republican coming from the south because it was much more agricultural and much more export oriented. For the same reason, it was very difficult to be a free trade Democrat from the north. Because if you're coming from Pennsylvania, the constituency base there in terms of the steel industry or other manufacturing industries um, would sort of want you to uh, be protection. So what happened is, is that um, uh, geography trumped party in some sense. So if you were a Democrat from the north, 
um, and the Democrats really wanted to get much more traction in the North politically, um, you had to compromise on that issue of trade and, and, and have some uh, protectionist Democrats in your ranks. This just fed into the Republican uh, success because they could always count on some Democrats um, supporting them uh, or spoiling the, the Democrats' plans uh, to uh, uh, reduce tariffs. Um, so uh, Pennsylvania Democrats in particular were um, uh, an annoyance to the National Party because uh, they were so strongly in favor of protecting the steel industry. Speaking of industry, uh, and this is an issue that has bedeviled America ever since it really, both in this period and later, uh, in terms of industrial uh, areas uh, wanting uh, protection. You note in your book that American workers, especially unions, were actually quite divided on the question of whether or not to raise tariffs uh, or even to have tariffs. Some they, they they sounded like every other American. Some Americans said this will protect our uh, this will give us higher wages. Some some Amer uh, some workers said uh, that this will raise our cost of living and it may cost of jobs. And yet, nevertheless, uh, Republicans generally had a hammerlock on these industrial states. How was it if the workers themselves weren't really sure whether or not the tariff was good for them or not? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, you're right. There was no sort of um, workers did not have one view. Um, it depended on which industry you were employed. Uh, it depended uh, and then it depended on whether your industry was an exporting industry or an import competing industry. Um, there are a lot of just uh, consumers, uh, workers in the, in the service sector um, that uh, just concern, concern themselves with um, their ability to buy uh, goods and services at low prices. Um, so the Republicans were politically dominant, but they were always, there was some fragility in their position too. Uh, there was electoral electoral competition um, and a sense of corruption. So the Democrats every now and then on, would win sort of the anti-corruption vote um, and uh, challenge uh, Republican dominance, particularly in the House. Um, that's, it's a little bit harder in the Senate where the state legislatures had uh, uh, sort of a lock on in terms of picking who was going to be representing that state. Um uh, so it, it was a tough balancing act. Um, and there were some Republicans who, uh, you know, once again, a minority faction, just as there were minority protectionist Democrats, um, not minority uh, free trader Republicans were in favor of trade agreements with other countries, uh, moderating the tariff. Um, I think it was in 1872, I think the Republicans uh, passed what they called the free breakfast table. Once again, to appeal to consumers saying, we're not going to tax your tea and your coffee that you consume for breakfast, um, uh, but we're not going to stop protecting the steel industry. So there were parts of, of U.S. imports that were getting taxed that weren't protecting jobs, really. The U.S. wasn't producing coffee and tea. Um, we're not producing bananas. Um, and so the Republicans could sort of moderate their position by saying, OK, we'll cut the import duties on those goods because the consumer will benefit but we're not going to um, abandon the, the principle of protecting American jobs and industry. Fair enough. Uh, speaking of, though, uh, uh, American industry, uh, there was a point in your book that I felt was a little bit of a throwaway comment. I was wondering if you could elaborate on it. You said that even in this time of industrial might, when there was probably the peak of uh, Americans, both native and immigrant working in industry, you said that the majority of Americans were nevertheless working, you said, in what you called services. And I was wondering if you could elaborate exactly what does that mean in non-economic experts terms? What did that mean? What kind of services are we talking about? Where? Uh, for what purpose? 
Yeah. Um, so when you look at um, uh, the, the most basic way you can divide the labor force uh, in the United States or any country is into how many are working in agriculture, how many are working in industry, um, that's manufacturing or mining or possibly construction, um, and then how many are working in, in services. Uh, and so when you look at that for the U.S., there's never a majority of the American workforce in manufacturing. I think it peaks at maybe 35 or 40 percent, possibly, but I, I think it's about 35 percent is the peak. That's because, you know, you can make a lot of stuff, but you also need people to transport it. You need people to build the railroads. You need people in finance and in cities that are undertaking commerce, um, uh, people who are, uh, you know, uh, loading and offloading ships. They're not producing things per se. They're not in the manufacturing sector, but of course, they're helping the economy run. And so the service sector has always been uh, very important in the U.S. economy, just the transportation of goods and the marketing of goods. Uh, and of course, so that that's really rising in the 19th century and into the 20th century. And it's agriculture that uh, is really falling throughout the 19th century and 20th century in terms of a, being a big employer. So fall, that's that's a great explanation for, for that issue. Um, another thing that came up as I was reading your book is that you noticed that and I'll get to this in the, in the follow-up question, but that this is an intensely political question. It, it involves a lot of politics and a lot of, of all the, it involves a lot of questions about where you get votes where. Um, and I was honestly wondering, given that the American economy was diversifying and different people, like you said, some people were export-oriented, you had businesses, you had commerce and so on and so forth. How is it that, at least according to your book, the only organized group that fought for free trade were, and I hope you don't find this insulting, the eggheads, the, the professors, the theoreticians, the people who knew the crunch the numbers, but not like an interest group in the sense we would understand today. How is it that they never formed any sort of chamber of commerce or whatever group, aside perhaps from agriculture, that said we want, or even consumer protection groups, which were also big in this period. How come they didn't arise and say, Free trade's good for us. We'd like it more. If you want, if you want our votes, you need to go for freer trade. Well, there there were such groups, but they were so small and, and powerless that they didn't have much of an impact. So I do mention in the book David Wells, who uh, had been a sort of a rabid uh, protectionist prior to the Civil War, but then modified his views afterwards, thinking the taxes were just too high, they were costing American consumers too much, and they were protecting inefficient industries. So he formed uh, sort of the American Anti-Tariff League. Um, I believe that was the name of it. I could be mistaken. Um, but once again, it just didn't achieve much uh, traction. Uh, you know, some people would support it, but it wasn't a mass group of uh, of uh, individuals. Consumers generally, it's very difficult for them to organize. Producers, it's relatively easy for them to organize. So there's always going to be a political imbalance between producers and consumers. Um, and uh, and it goes back to an economic idea uh, about econo about concentrated benefits and diffuse losses. So if we take, say, uh, the sugar tariff, um, you know, there are only a handful of producers and a handful of states that are actually producing sugar. Um, they have a huge stake in whether there's a high tariff or a low tariff on sugar. So they're going to lobby for a high tariff because all the benefits accrue to just a few producer groups and their workers. But who's paying the sugar tariff? Well, it's consumers. Well, how many consumers? There, there's millions. Uh, and if they're each losing, you know, a fraction of their income, um, say, you know, per candy bar, a few cents will go into the sort of the extra costs of sugar. 
Well, you take those few cents, you aggregate across thousands, if not millions of consumers, it adds up to a lot of money that's going to just a few. But for us as consumers, it's not going to really pay for us to get so upset about paying a few extra cents every time we buy a couple pounds of sugar. So that's the political imbalance uh, that we see between producers and consumers. And the, the other problem facing those that wanted lower tariffs is the way Congress debated the tariff. So what the Congress did, and this is a very laborious, time-consuming uh, exercise, is go through the tariff line by line and say, okay, well, let's debate the sugar tariff for two days, and then we'll bait, uh, you know, talk about the linoleum tariff for two days, and then we will um, do the next line of the tariff code. And that sets it up to uh, favor the, the producers of each of those commodities. Um, but the consumers, you know, how many people I'm once again making up linoleum or steel nails? Uh, there may be a lot of steel nail consumers, but they're just not going to get activated for two days of debate. Whereas the steel nail producers, that's their time to show uh, how politically uh, strong they are. So Congress um, doesn't really weigh producers and consumers equally, mainly because they don't hear from consumers so much. They are out there, but they're just not politically active. So the producers have the advantage, as you said, both structurally in terms of money, in terms of interests and so forth. Um, one thing I had difficulty wrapping my head around uh, as uh, debates over tariffs continued, as you noted, uh, at one point uh, during the uh, early 20th century, even Andrew Carnegie basically came for Congress and said, guys, we don't actually need protection. It's OK. Um, did they really believe because uh, I know you note that they start to move towards, well, maybe we don't need a politics involved uh, tariff. Maybe we can find a way to, quote unquote, scientifically uh, determine the price. Did they really believe that? Because it was such a it's such a complex, complicated subject and it was such a headache every time they tried to revise the tariff. Did they really believe their own spiel or were they trying to maybe convince the public? Um, it's not really clear. I suspect they didn't really buy into the idea of a scientific tariff. But your question does raise another in interesting divide, at least within manufacturing and those that wanted higher tariffs and not, are not. There are a lot of this is, of course, the Golden Age, the era of really big business, big industrial conglomerations. Um, and so when you look at U.S. Steel and Andrew Carnegie, um, it's uh, uh they were a, a major producer. They were a low-cost producer. They were competitive uh, in terms of uh, exporting uh, to some extent. So he's absolutely right. They really didn't need the tariff. But for every large firm, there are dozens and dozens of really small firms that are less efficient that were really sheltered by the tariff. And they were the ones who said who would approach their members of Congress and say, Congress and say, if you get rid of the steel tariff or reduce it significantly. We're going to lose these hundred jobs or these thousand jobs in this small town in Pennsylvania or Ohio. So, it, what's there's a, a bit of a uh, mistaken sense about this time. It wasn't the big businesses that were demanding the tariff. It was really the small and medium-sized businesses um, that still employed a lot of people. But it was the less efficient producers that depended on the tariff. The big businesses they could pretty much survive without it. So, given that political constellation, like you said, uh, very powerful, especially in Pennsylvania and other places, um, it's been a while. So, I apologize. How exactly, in addition to the fact that the Republicans were nearly wiped out due to, 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 to the early years of the Great Depression, how exactly did the political coalition form to say, let's move from extremely high tariffs? to what you called reciprocity, where the president is more, or the executive is more involved in determining rights and where they negotiate free trade deals. After all, 
even though a lot of people switched their vote from Republican to Democrat, they still had many of the same interests. And indeed, it was the Great Depression, perhaps they were even more interested in protection. So how did that shift happen? Ah, so that's a great question. That's going to take us a little bit away from the Gilded Age. Um, But there are very few opportunities that the Democrats had. Uh, Essentially, you needed unified control of of the government. So you needed the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the presidency to be controlled by the same party, i.e. the Democrats, if you ever wanted to have any hope of reducing those tariffs. Um, And during the post-bellum period, the Democrats just never had that opportunity. They did in 1892 or in 1893 when they did uh, reduce the tariff. But the problem then is it was a, a depression, a major recession had hit in the early 1890s. And even Democrats, who we already said were sort of divided about the issue, it was hard to get Northern Democrats to buy into the idea of lower tariffs in a big way. Um, so they did something very half-hearted. They really didn't change the tariff code all that much. That was when uh, Grover Cleveland was not Grover Cleveland. Um, no, Grover Cleveland. Uh, Grover Cleveland was was president. Um, And of course, once the Republicans uh, regained uh, unified control of government, they just, you know, raised the tariffs right back up again. Um, The only other time before World War I was when Woodrow Wilson uh, 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 took over. And he got into power with the Democrats, partly because of a fluke. The the Republican Party was divided because Theodore Roosevelt ran against um, Taft. Um, They divided the Republican vote, so the Democrats slipped in. So it wasn't... this national groundswell uh, in favor of the Democrats. So to move uh, sort of fast forward, we we see the Republicans even in the 1920s and going into the Great Depression with Smoot-Hawley saying, yes, we need higher tariffs. And it wasn't until um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt achieved really, you know, that was a landslide election. It was a landmark election in terms of uh, realigning American politics. Once the Democrats took over after 1932, then we could see progress being made in terms of reducing tariffs, as you say, through uh, reciprocal trade agreements. Okay. Um, so, so the bottom line there is just, there's a lot of political inertia. It's very hard to overturn the system in some sense. Um, and it took a great depression in some sense to shift power to the Democrats and get a big change in U.S. trade policy. I agree. Uh, in fact, one of the, uh, I, I don't want to say depressing, but at least somewhat dispiriting parts of the book was seeing how Congress would have these really uh, principled arguments over trade, both between, between the Republicans and the Democrats, and they all brought facts. They all had this democratic discussion according to what we think they should do, and nobody budged an inch in terms of their positions, despite going on for months. So it 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 kind of makes you it makes you realize that you have to play the political game. It's not just about arguing; it's about convincing the right people or convincing the the wrong people to do the right thing, as Milton Friedman once said. Yeah, so I mean, the votes were is, the votes were almost predetermined. If the Democrats controlled the House, you know which way the vote was going to go. If the Republicans did, you, you know which way it was going to go. And so, all the weeks of uh, speeches and uh, printed pages in the congressional record of uh, uh, members of Congress imploring um, people to change their minds and vote one way or the other, it was all wasted because uh, it was pretty much party line votes. The party bosses were very politically powerful. The Speaker of the House, you know, would uh, whip people into shape. And uh, they were almost always party line votes. And it was predetermined by who controlled the chamber. Yeah. Professor Irwin, you have given us a a wonderful, uh, very succinct and very uh, easy to understand introduction uh, to an often complicated subject that uh, affected uh, American lives. 
Thank you very much for coming on. I'd like to once again uh, remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon Music and Spotify, and you can support this podcast on Patreon. Thank you.